Our passion didn't start with a mouth. It started with people, with the well-being of the profession. And if you're like me, maybe a little bit of your nerdiness and all things tech too. We all want to love what we do, but the truth is burnout, people problems, and glass ceilings can keep us from doing what we set out to do. So let's get back to the heart of connection. Welcome to the Dental Handoff. This show is about passing you the knowledge, the habits, the systems, and the strategies to lead your teams, lean on your tech, and listen to your gut while you take care of people and truly the overall health of our communities. Let's stop using the wrong end of the toothbrush, y'all. My name is Dr. Kelly Tanner. Oh, and uniquely, I'm a dental hygienist too. You can consider me a guru in the dental and leadership industry. With over three decades of experience, my goal is to take you to the next level by empowering growth, perspective, and confidence. By identifying the gaps, recognizing the plaque, and extracting the truth with the other experts in the field. I'll share their stories, empower you to own yours, and elevate your passion in the process. So have a seat in the chair, put on your bib, and let's get to work. Welcome to the Dental Handoff. I am Dr. Kelly Tanner, and today I have Dr. Pamela Maragliano Muniz with me, and she is the Chief Editor of Dental Economics. I've met Pam, I think, in passing probably at least 25 times at conferences, and it's like, hey, how are you? And that's how conference life is, and just being a busy professional. But we took time not long ago to slow down, to get acquainted. And Pam, I'm so happy to have you on the dental handoff today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you and to just kind of have a chat and hang out. It's so nice to have time to do that. I know. Thanks. Thanks for making time because I know you guys how Fridays are so precious to get caught up on work. And Pam, what I always love to start with is I love knowing people's stories. And that's what people thrive on in this show and the dental handoff. And they always want to know what is your why? Like why dentistry? Why did you choose it in the beginning? I didn't choose it. (laughs) It was one of those things that, I mean, if, I mean, I was always impressed in dental school and even hygiene school by my classmates that like couldn't wait to be in the dental field. And I was not that person ever by dental school. I was, but it all started with hygiene school. My, I was in high school playing hockey and I really just wanted to major in ice hockey and doing nothing. And my dad's like, Nope, you're not going to do that. You need a job where you won't have to depend on a man. So he decided that that job was dental hygiene. And so he pushed my sister into dental hygiene. And when it was my turn to roll around, I said, fine, I'll apply to dental hygiene school. But when I don't get in, because I don't think people realize how hard it is to get into dental hygiene school. And there are so many hygienists that apply multiple times to get in. So I wasn't expecting to get in on the first go. And so I cut a deal with him. I said, if I don't get into dental hygiene school, I'm going to apply to vet tech school and I will become a veterinary technician. And that can be my, I don't need a man job. And then I can figure out my life after. And sure enough, I got right into dental hygiene school and it was so interesting. And it was different for me because Prior to that, I just sort of woke up in the morning and went to school and I'd play hockey until Lord knows what time at night and I'd roll out of bed and go back to school the next day. And I didn't feel like I was going to school with a purpose. 
And now all of a sudden I'm learning skills for me to apply on another human. And that just came with so much importance to me. And it was something where I took it very seriously, even though I never really thought this was going to be where I landed in life. And I fell in love with it. So just like people and pets, when you're at a shelter or whatever else, you just never know when you're going to fall in love. That's true. And so your dad chose your profession. You ended up loving it. What about your sister? Yeah, she's a hygienist in New York somewhere. Okay. Yeah. And then so you decided that you, you fell in love with this unexpectedly, like love often does. And then you went on to become a DMD. And tell me about that transition. Like, what did you say to yourself that it was just like, no, not just this and also this? What was that conversation in your head like? So when I finished hygiene school, I knew I wasn't done with school. And so I, because I've loved it, I decided, actually, my sister and I decided to apply to one school and we both applied to Forsyth and we decided that's where we were going. And I thought, which is insane now, I thought I would be a researcher or something. So we had, you know, to get your associates in dental hygiene, you have to take all of these classes ahead of time. So I had a prior associate's degree before dental hygiene school. And so my sister had a whole bunch of classes as well. So it really only took us one year to get our bachelor's degree. And so the way that that program was set up was that you're supposed to work in, you know, in private practice and, and work on your bachelor's degree. So I did that and I was mesmerized by the periodic exam. I know this sounds crazy, but I enjoyed my visits with my patients. It was cool because I had recently moved to Boston. So they're teaching me restaurants to go to, books to read, things to visit, that kind of thing. Um, clearly wasn't focused on their oral health, which I mean, that all has changed. But um, the periodic exam was where it was at for me because I had no prior dental experience. So I could maybe on a good day spot a problem. I had no clue how mm. it would be fixed. And so I would just sit there in awe by how clever the dentist was when they would come up with all these solutions just on the fly to all of these problems that we were able to identify. And I was like, wow, well, maybe that's what I want to do. But I worked for a GP and um, I, and he, you know, admittedly probably wasn't as inspiring a, a dentist as say the, the prosthodontists I was working with. And I, I just, because I had no prior dental knowledge, I decided if I was going to go to dental school, I had to be like them. And that's who I want to be like. So if I'm going to dental school, I must become a prosthodontist because I want to be like Dr. Manis and Dr. Chapman. And that was kind of what I wanted to do. And so I went into dental school just like laser focused on prosthodontics because I wanted to be like those that inspired me. The periodic exam. <laughs> I know. The periodic. I, 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 okay. So you were fascinated about how, what I'm hearing is that how he could tell that there were certain like problems going on and like probably have the crystal ball of what had happened in the mouth. Like this person's probably had this happen and here's how I know how to fix it. That, that kind of connection. Oh yeah. I couldn't, I will never forget the first time I found a cracked tooth. I was like ready to call the ambulance. It was like <laughs> three, two, three, three, two, ten. 10. What? Hold on hold on, let me, let me measure this again. And like, whoa, 
oh my gosh. All right. Oh, okay. Let me get the doctor. And I get him in and I was like, okay, we've got like a 12 or whatever it was here. And he was like, okay, well, that's great that you found it, but that, that tooth is cracked and that tooth needs to come out and went through the whole thing with the patient, just like, like it was just a normal conversation, which for me, I'd never seen that. And so obviously the conversation I'm more comfortable with now, but I just couldn't believe how quickly you could find something and they just had a solution for it right then and there. And not only did they have a solution for it, they explained it in such a way that I understood it. So if I understood it, then obviously the patient would understand it and they would just, you know, go along and and get the care that they needed. And it was just so interesting for me. The rest of my appointments were, you know, great, but it was more so meeting new people and, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think I understood the impact that an oral health care provider can have on a person that early in my career. But I did know that, you know, that finding a problem, there were plenty of solutions for it. And there was just a really, um, you know, a sound approach to doing that. And I just wanted to learn more. That's so cool. I remember the first time I also found a crack and I was teaching students how to do that too, when I taught at VCU for the first time. And it just like, just like you said, it's two, three, 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 two, ten. Two, three, three, and they're going. What is going on? That I was like, that's why you use your short overlapping strokes when you probe, because otherwise you're going to miss it. Got to walk and, that probe around. Yes, yes, you do. And um, it, it, I need, I need an, an ambulance stat, right? Because they have a twelve millimeter pocket. <laughs> okay, so then did you go to did you go to become a prosthodontist? Like, what happened after that? Yeah. So I went to Tufts Dental School and I I knew I wanted to be a prosthodontist. Um, One of the prosthodontists that I had worked with in private practice was the chair of restorative at Tufts. And I just had such excellent mentoring there. And so the pros faculty were amazing and they were very supportive in what I wanted to do. And they were willing to just spend more time with me. Like I just forever will be grateful for the faculty that I had. And I did. I applied to PROS and I went to UCLA for my residency in prosthodontics. I lived there for four years, three of which was for my residency. One was just kind of to work and waste a year. And then I moved back to Boston after. And the mentoring, did you choose the mentors or were they chosen chosen for you? How did that work? So originally, I mean, as a, as a hygienist working for, I mean, I didn't know. I actually it was a temp job that they ended up, I know, I know it sounds like human trafficking. They, they, when they buy you as a temp and they keep you for a long time. No, I know what you mean. So, uh, <laughs> so it was it's like not your contract. They buy your contract, not you. Yes, not me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. You know, and um, willfully taken, whatever. And um, so this practice, um, I ended up working there for a year and I didn't really realize the relevance of a, somebody who's teaching at Tufts or, you know, whatever. I just enjoyed that practice and I liked how the practice was run. Coincidentally, one of the doctors there was the chair of restorative. So it was really great to see him when I was, you know, so I knew him from private practice. It was cool to see him in a a teacher role. And then I, you know, I think that it sort of happened more naturally. You know, I would talk to the pros faculty and talk about residency programs and that this is what I want to do. And, um, 
you know, my first gold crown was kind of a disaster. And back in the day, we had to wax it up and cast it and do all the things. And it took me like days to deliver the thing. And then what I learned was I learned about occlusal interferences. So my next gold crown dropped in, no adjustments. Like it was just amazing. And so I learned pretty quickly in dental school that you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And I just felt if I'm placing my hands on another person, I better know as much as I can. And for me, it was prosthodontics that was going to get me to where I would feel comfortable treating patients. And by the time I was in my senior year of dental school, I guess I can say it now, they can't take my diploma away, is um, I just stopped going to school on Mondays. And I started working back in that practice. And it was so wonderful because my boss would sit me down every Monday and be like, what are we doing this week? And I'd go through my schedule of you know my patients in the clinic and he would just throw me little pieces of advice or pull me into the lab or show me things. And it was just, it was really great to be around people that are just natural teachers and people that were so giving of their insights, especially that early in my career. Yes, that's, I think it's what makes an entire difference and how successful you can be as that person who you can lean on, that person who will be that light in your life to, to shine light on what is going through that. I know that some programs have structured, structured mentoring programs. And so that's why I was wondering if at the time when you went, if you had to seek your, or you just, you know, organically sought your and found your own mentor, or if it was an assigned mentor, because I think that can make a difference too. But then also too, there's opportunity in that where a person doesn't truly know you. And so they're not biased and they can give you that unbiased perspective. Well, I can tell you that did, so we did not, I, as far as I know, we did not have assigned mentors in dental school. We had a, a like a big sister, little sister, little mm-hmm. brother, big brother program. So we had mentorship just like via vertical learning, but I don't think there was an actual faculty mentor program. But I will say that when I finished residency, moved back to Boston, I just felt if I could do for somebody else what the faculty did for me, then... I'm doing good in the world. And so I joined the Tufts faculty when I moved back. And at that time, when I came back, there was a structured mentor program. And so I had a mentor group for years and it was just, you know, five or so students and we'd go out to dinner once a month. And sometimes I'd provide advice. Sometimes I'd just sit back and listen to them complain about things or whatever it was. I was just sort of there for them. And One of my favorite things about it is here I am, and some of them are hitting their 10-year reunion this year, last year, that kind of thing. And um, I'm still in touch with them. And so it's a really special relationship that you can develop with a faculty member. It's another level of that servant leadership that we sign up for and the dental profession, because we're there when I speak. You know, it's what's your why, of course, and people are like, I want to serve, I want to serve, I want to improve lives, I want to give confidence, all, all the psychological aspects of that too. But what it always boils down to is that servant leadership. And I think that's what you're talking about as well, because you wanted to pay it forward because you got so much out of that. I did. And I didn't have any dental, uh, any, any dental professionals in my family. And so it was one of those things that I, I, I didn't have anybody, you know? And so I had to, you know, make my own friends in dental school. I had to figure out my mentors as faculty. And I just felt like 
you know, I was fortunate because I was a hygienist and having been a hygienist ahead of time, it was like, as soon as the faculty heard I was a hygienist, I had a job on Saturday anywhere. Like I was working. Yeah. And, and that was cool to see my faculty members in their clinical setting and doing the thing. I'm sorry if you're hearing meowing, I had to move my cat. Um, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where we have, um, you know, it was cool to see them in that setting and see them having conversation with patients and seeing them with other team members in the office and what kind of culture they, they develop because, you know, you see them in class, you see how they are, but you know, how are they in this other setting? And so as a hygienist, I was fortunate to be able to see that for a number of my faculty members. And I feel like if you come in as quote unquote, just a dental student and you don't have you know, that ability to see them in that setting, or you have to kind of cultivate your own relationships. I will say that if it's something that's assigned or something that you have to figure out yourself, it's so worth it. So just do it. All right. I'm going to ask you a question, put you on the spot. I just thought of it because sure. you've had both roles as a hygienist and a, and a, a prosthodontist. I mean, I know that you're a DMD. What would you say to hygienists, knowing what you know as a dentist, what would you say to hygienists that hygienists should understand about dentistry or, or a doctor or the doctor's perspective that maybe they don't? Oh my gosh, so much stuff. Now, I will <laughs> say that I will tell you honestly, and it's true, and um, you can go back and look at all my things. I have been peddling the value of a dental hygienist on stages in, you know, at major dental shows and study clubs, all the places all over the world since 2010. So when I say this, I'm saying this with, I love y'all. I know you have a lot of value. Um, but you also need to understand a few things. Number one, when you look at a production report, or if you're given a production report, not every dollar ends up in the doctor's pocket. In fact, that's like the opposite of the truth. So I think if, you know, if you are taking those extra steps to say, Hey, I want to see how productive I am. And I want to see KPIs. And I think I deserve more money. And I do these things, have a deeper conversation on what that actually looks like in the practice versus just assuming, you know, what you're bringing in is supporting what you're making. I mean, now is a weird time. And so I think having that conversation, having an honest conversation is really important. I say that's number one. Um, I feel like sometimes hygienists get, you know, right now, I mean, everyone's in demand. So I mean, supply and demand, you're going to pay top dollar for a hygienist. And I get that. And I'm not saying you're not worth every penny. But if you're looking for, you know, a higher value, you're looking for these things, you have to bring it, you know, and the numbers don't lie. And this is where I get to put my DE, my DE hat on. And Honestly, hygienists should be making somewhere between 25 and 35% of adjusted production, which means collections, which means if you are in a practice that ex, um, participates in third-party payers and PPOs and insurance plans, it's not production. It's what the office brings in. And so if you run the numbers, you might be surprised what that looks like. And you might be surprised by how much you are making, you know, in comparison to the numbers that you're bringing in. And that's a harsh reality because that's the world we live in as dentists and as associate dentists, like you just make what you bring in. 
And Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, a hard reality for us. And I think that that's something that, you know, hygienists could definitely benefit from understanding a little bit more about the business of dentistry and what that looks like. I think it would allow dentists and hygienists to have more of a harmonious relationship. That's number one. Number two. Okay. When you call us in for an exam, if we cannot get up right away, it is because we're doing something really freaking important and really technique sensitive. Like, I just feel like I see all of these memes and I just want to strangle my phone when I see hygienists rolling their eyes, staring at their watches, waiting for dentists. I get it that sometimes we make hygienists wait. But to be honest with you, it's because we're trying to provide really exceptional care to our patients and for our patients. And when we're in the middle of bonding something, we can't stop. Like once Mm -hmm. it starts, we can't stop. Like it has to be completed. And I feel like we're not given the grace that I think that we deserve sometimes when you're waiting for us. And I apologize for dentists all over the planet that make hygienists wait. But I, I wish that there was a little more understanding that when that does happen, you know, I, I would say, yes, there's probably, you know, outliers of dentists that just have no respect for the schedule. I mean, I'm sure that's out there, but mm-hmm. I would say at least, you know, from my perspective, you know, a lot of us want our restorations to last, you know, and one of us, yeah. you know, we want to do a great job for our patients. And that involves being extremely detail oriented and respecting the materials that we're working with. And the mouth is a hard place to work. and not just from an ergonomic standpoint or access standpoint, but an environmental standpoint with the materials that we use that, you know, sometimes we just can't get up and I'm sorry, but we're trying, we all try to do the best. And I think that, you know, if we had more of a, you know, more understanding of each other's roles, that the practice would be more harmonious and we would have a greater understanding of one another and a better respect for each other. And I think that that's lacking right now. Agreed. And, you know, as you're, as you're talking about the, the curing and the bonding and all of the very technique sensitive procedures, what I visualize is the doctor sitting there talking to the patient with about vacation and going, Oh yeah, what are you guys doing this summer? Because that's, I think the majority of what hygienists are talking about. It's the, that they lose track of time and that, Oh, they are needed somewhere else. So it's, for what from what I know and from what I've been around with consulting and being a hygienist, it's not when they're in the middle of a procedure because you plan for you plan for some of that in your morning huddle when you know when doctor can't get up and when you when you're going to time your checks or if they say I don't need to check them depending on which state that you're practicing in and they say I don't need to check the the patient was checked last time they're generally healthy if I don't see anything good. We're good to go. So you plan for some of that, but it's when they're, lo- it seems like they're lollygagging or back there drinking coffee or reading the newspaper. And it's like, come on, man. That's a different story. Like for that dentist, get off your booty and get in there and do your exam. Like your coffee will be fine. Just like there's microwaves for that. So like, yeah. it's fine. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I just feel like I see these things and I take them to heart because I'm, I would never do that. And I just think, my goodness, you know, there's, there's all of these, you know, you know, disparaging things towards dentists that are up, you know, on social media all the time. And I'm like, if they just understood 
some of the things that we're doing. And it's actually kind of awesome. I love when my hygienists come back and hang out with me when I'm working. Uh, <laughs> Sarah's hilarious, for example, like she'll come back and she'll be like, what? You have a heater for your composite? You're so bougie. What, what even is that? And it's so funny because I take what I have for granted back there. Like I don't assume, I just assume everybody knows what that is. And it's so funny because, you know, not everybody knows what each other's doing in the same practice. And so I think it's great for you, you know, each of you to spend time with one another and see why you do what you do and what it is that makes it so you're doing it well. And oftentimes once you understand that a little bit better of each other, then yeah, no, I think, you know, I think that you just have a better culture, a better environment, more respect, more trust. But yes, if you're just chilling back there, you know, playing Candy Crush and not going for an exam, that's lame. We need to step it up. It is. And I I totally agree with you that, and I think even the front office um, team members should rotate and, and observe different procedures so they know what goes into that procedure and that we all should. Because sometimes docs, and you know this from being a dental hygienist and a dentist, but dentists don't get a lot of training in scaling and root planing and using and hand scaling and, and all of those things. And so the time it takes to go in when you're up against, you know, tenacious calculus, you just can't get it off or it's the patient management aspect or anxiety, all the things that go into not just the oral environment, but managing the patient expectation and the experience as well from both sides. Most so conversely, definitely. yeah, go ahead. No, no, most definitely. I remember when I was a hygienist and I was a lot younger then, I was working five days a week. And by Friday afternoon, I could barely breathe. Like, I just remember my back hurt. I was tired. Like, I just remember, like, I was just like, by Friday afternoon, I was like done. And it didn't even occur to me that I could work fewer days. Like, I just saw my parents work five days a week. I just assumed I'd do the same. And um, I'd say, physically as a dentist. And I mean, I don't extract teeth. And so I'm not like wrestling teeth all day either. But um, I, I I have better ergonomics, like I'm way better off now than I was when I was a hygienist. And I think it's because, you know, what we do is repetitive, but it's not that repetitive. And so I think you're right. I think understanding what that means is really important. And um, one thing that used to drive me crazy in dental school I don't know if it's the same. I would assume it is. In Massachusetts, when you're a third-year dental student, you can take the hygiene board. And so my classmates would be like, I'm a hygienist just like you now. And I was like, you'll never be a hygienist just like me. Like, you need to understand, like, geez, I mean, we spent months on like one sextant. I mean, and you, we spent like one second, you know, like, don't be pretending that it's the same because it's not. And it's like, the sooner you realize that, the better off your whole life will be. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and don't say it out loud in front of a hygienist. Yeah. And, and you need to stop talking. I don't want to hear you say that ever again, because I might hurt you. <laughs> That's right. Talk to the hand. Exactly. And so then from the hygienist perspective, what do you think, conversely, you, you answer the question, like, what do you think hygienists should know? What should doctors know from hygiene's perspective? So one thing I didn't know back in the day, and I feel like I'm just learning it more and more being around amazing hygienists, is that hygienists have such an innate opportunity and a special opportunity to make patients healthier. And doing that means understanding the science, 
having technology that will support what you do, having the autonomy to make recommendations to the patient, whether it's care recommendations or go home, you know, tools and, you know, different technologies to go home with. And there's a lot of value to that. And so one thing that I just, it's, it's, I mean, it's hard right now and I get it. Trust me, I'm looking for an assistant. I mean, there's a lot, everybody has their struggle, but I see dentists saying, oh, I don't want to pay a hygienist. I'm going to do my own hygiene visits. And I just think that's such a disservice to yourself, your practice and your patients. Because when you have a hygienist that is committed to getting your patients healthy, making your restorations better, a better foundation for your restorations, a better environment for them, it's such a partnership. And it's a partnership I would never give up. And, and there is, in fact, value there. And um, I'm actually publishing an article in April's DE about tripling my hygiene production in three years. And that's, you know, what's involved in doing that and sitting back and relying on the recommendations from the nineties back when I graduated hygiene school is not going to cut it. You know, we, there's more research now. And I mean, as a restorative dentist, I get, I don't really, I mean, I do to an extent still, because I also focus on prevention so strongly, but I would argue that probably not every dentist is that excited about research, about prevention and about biofilm. And the life cycle of biofilm is three months. And so you, you hear that and you hear stats like 75% of all Americans have gingivitis, 50 per, upwards of 50% of all Americans over 30 have some form of periodontitis. I'm going to challenge you to go to your practice, run some reports and look at what your practice looks like, because I'll tell you what mine looked like. I, my, I had 5.7% of my patients were perio patients. And is it because I'm so spectacular that all my patients are healthy? Or is it that my patients were being grossly undertreated? And the answer was the latter. And when you have a hygienist that's committed to turning that hygiene department around and getting patients the care that they need, it is not only good for the patients, it's not only super satisfying for the hygienist, but it's amazing for your practice and your bottom line. And so I honestly couldn't practice without the partnership of a hygienist on my team. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's and great perspective from both sides. Cause I knew that you, you would just hit the nail right on the head with both perspectives and the relevancy of what is going on today. And I think at the heart of it all, it's that understanding about what, what each of us do and the value that we provide is what I'm hearing at the heart of it. Because oh, yeah. when you, when you value the other value, the other person, what they're going through, you can put yourself in their shoes. Like, okay, what can I do to support them? What can I do to keep it going? So the patient never misses a beat. They don't even feel like they're waiting and next patient seated on time. And that's the way a, a well-oiled team does. And that's, you know, part of the culture there. It's true. And I will say that patients need that and want that too. You know, mm -hmm. I bought a practice that was 32 years old when I bought it. And so I'm coming up on my nine year anniversary with my practice. So my practice is over 40 years old. And there's patients that have been around my practice that entire time. And it 
I wasn't sure what it would look like bringing in GBT and bringing, you know, changing technology, changing the hygienists themselves, like all of the things, how that would, what that would look like, because patients were used to talking about their vacations and their pets and recipes and whatever that had nothing to do with their oral health. And now the appointments focused on their oral health. Obviously, we ask them how they are and we get the scoop on what's going on in their life. But the appointment is focused on their oral health. And I can tell you that it's so satisfying having been able to sit back for the past nine years and watch what's happened in my practice to see patients that were, we kind of wrote off as being not compliant or, you know, didn't really care. Or there's patients that, you know, hygienists say, oh, they're just a bleeder. They just bleed. That's what they do every time, everywhere. And um, we don't accept that anymore. Mm-hmm. And to see a patient who, you know, was, we kind of wrote off as being not really compliant to seeing somebody using their water pick every day. And it's actually not uncommon for us to review a perio chart and there not be one spot of bleeding, which is amazing. Okay. Like I had three last time. I mean, and, and I'm me and I'm like, patients are getting zero, like they're better than I am. And to see that level of motivation and that level of commitment by our patients and that level of commitment to quality by my team, it's just like, it just makes my heart sing. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. It's the, we make such a big difference in the oral health, the overall health, the lifespan of our patients that we don't even know about what could happen if it goes untreated. That's, that's the S, X factor of like how, how, how many more years we could probably be adding to someone's life because we've caught it, we've treated it appropriately and done what we knew was right. And that passed that litmus test in dental school or in hygiene school, just doing what we know. What we know, but also having that belief that what you offer matters Mm. and how you can truly impact one's health. I mean, for the most part, obviously there's, you know, people that don't, but for the most part, everybody has a family and everybody has people that they love around them. And everybody knows and cares about somebody that has heart disease, diabetes, dementia, you name it. And that there's a significant link to oral health with that systemic condition. And when you review a patient's medical history, and you start bringing up these different items, all of a sudden it hits home that we can mitigate the risk for exacerbation of the systemic illness that they watch their parents die from by coming in every three months. I mean, it's just a no brainer. And all of a sudden, I mean, when you disclose your patients and they see the biofilm that's left on their teeth, I mean, not, I mean, most people brush their teeth before their dental hygiene visit. You know, they try to get you know, they, I don't know what they think they're doing there, but they're, you know, going to try to do something to show their hygienist they're doing a great job. And when they're getting, you know, when they're just coming off a dental hygiene, like a pre-dental hygiene toothbrushing, and they still have tons of biofilm in their mouth, that's profound to be able to see that. And there's such an objective way to, sh- to convey that information to the patient and to really get them to own what's going on in their mouth and also motivate them to care for themselves better. And it's, it's possible and the value's there and you certainly can do it. And it's, it's really, truly rewarding to see. 
Yes. And thank you for also what you're doing through your work with dental economics. I know that you guys have a conference coming up. We do. Uh, This conference is different. It's going to be awesome, actually. Um, You know, DE is a practice management magazine. And so we do focus a lot on the practice and metrics and coaching and that kind of thing. And obviously clinical, I think it's important to have a strong clinical practice to have a good practice in general. But this conference is about money and it's about creating wealth. You know, there's a lot of dentists that sell their practice and they feel disappointed by what they got from the sale. And we're criticized by having like this amazing lifestyle and dentists being rich, but then like their financial people are like, they're not rich. They just spend a lot of money on things, you know? And the other thing that's actually pretty sad about dentists, I'm not sure about hygienists, but I would argue that it's probably maybe similar. Dentists retire about seven or eight years later than the average American. And I would argue that it's not because we love it so much. (laughs) It's probably because we have to continue working for one reason or another. And so this conference is to discuss exactly that. How do we generate wealth from our practices? How do we maximize the value from our practices? How do we, you know, maybe try to have tax strategies to help with savings and, you know, um, and the conference is the secrets of successful dentists for creating wealth. And so I think I certainly it's, you know, geared towards a practice owner, but learning, uh, you know, smart financial tools and, you know, financial uh, strategies is for everybody. You know, so I certainly think that anybody, regardless of where you are in your career, you know, and, you know, what role you play in the dental practice can benefit from this because everybody, you know, many people own a home, many people are trying to decide what they're going to do with their life, you know, and here I am. I mean, I think, I mean, we all think about retirement, but I think there's kind of an, when we're early in our career, it feels like it's so far away. But then all of a sudden you hit 10, 15, 20 years in and you're like, whoa, I know I'm not going to do this forever. We're watching our parents age and we're like, that's me next, you know, and I need to make a plan for that. And so this is what this is about. And it's really to help help dentists harness what they have to help them retire on their own on their own watch, you know, not because they have to or not because they wait till their body gives out, you know plan for it so you can do what you want to do when you want to do it. I love that. That's powerful. That's Thank powerful. I, 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 so needed, so timely. Is it a two-day conference? It's a day and a half. Okay. It'll take place in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace on October 13th and 14th. And let me tell you, it's going to be a good conference because I would not be away from my dog on her 11th birthday if it wasn't for a good reason. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, certainly it's going to be a great conference. Our lineup is like next level. And, um, and honestly, the speakers that we have, you don't get them in one room at one at any time ever. So I feel like it's going to be truly a special event. It's kind of like a a, a once in a, a lifetime with getting all of them together. I'm not sure if I'll be able to pull that off again. So I'd love it if you join us. Thank you for the information. And do people just go to the website? Is it on dentaleconomics.com? Yeah, you can go to dentaleconomics.com. I believe there's a tab that says conference. You can click on it there. If you can't find it, hit me up on Instagram or email me or whatever, and I can certainly send you the link. But yeah, I'd love to have you join us. 
And what's your handle on Instagram? How do people reach out to you? Sure. It's Dr. Pamela underscore Miragliano. Awesome. You have been delightful today. I have, I just am in awe of your, of what you've done and what you continue to do through your positions and your perspective. And thank you so much for speaking kind of, you know, life into the practice and the perspective that you have and that you probably hear too from that social listening perspective and you're still doing the the hands-on and you're managing and you know you're inspiring your team so all of that is such an important aspect of being a leader and you know and growing and and you know the visionary that you are so yeah thank you so much for being on our show today thank you so much that means so much to me and i honestly i just love what i do and i love the people i do it with and i love the people i do it for you know so it's all you know it's it's really I mean what I say. So it's true. Yeah. It's all out of love, isn't it? It's all from that servant leadership heart. Well, for everybody watching, thank you so much for your time. And if you wouldn't mind, give us five stars on Apple and because we all know that Apple is what matters with the AI. And then also like, and subscribe to us on YouTube where you're finding this full recording. Thank you so much. Be well. And thanks for all that you do. Bye-bye.